Good morning, everyone. Thank you for attending today. I'm going to pause us for just a moment while everyone logs in. And good morning for those of you who have just joined. Thanks for joining us today. This is Leah Freeberg from Fluke Reliability, and this is our best practices webinar series. You probably know Fluke is a test tool provider, and you may also know that we produce some of the industry's favorite reliability tools from infrared cameras to vibration meters. But you may not know that many of the measurements that our tools collect now flow automatically into EAM systems of record. It happens via a framework that we call Fluke Connect. Our goal at Fluke Reliability is to better connect asset management data and teams with asset management systems to drive connected knowledge. And of course, that knowledge depends greatly on the best practices in condition-based maintenance. So that's why this series of webinars explores reliability maintenance strategies, and that's why we feature speakers from a variety of expert backgrounds. Before the presentation, we have a few housekeeping items to go over. Today's session is being recorded, so the phone lines will be muted to minimize background noise. We will save time after the presentation for your questions. If questions come up during the presentation, you are welcome to use the questions feature on GoToWebinar to submit comments as we go. So take a minute now, find the questions tool in the dashboard. At the end of the talk, I will share as many of your questions as time allows for our presenters to answer. If we have unanswered questions at the end, we'll follow up with the written answers. If you would like to receive the slides from today's presentation, please let us know during the survey that will appear at the end of today's session. So don't hang up until the survey appears and you've answered the questions. We're also happy to send you a certificate of attendance after today's webinar. You'll see a question on the survey about getting a certificate. Answer yes, and we'll send one to you. A recording of this webinar in full will be available on the excelx.com website within a day or two. And that's it for housekeeping. So now for the main event. Today, we are very pleased to have with us two experts from Fluke Reliability, Kevin Clark and Brian Harrison. They will be presenting on how to get the best ROI for digitalizing your asset maintenance. Kevin Clark, CMRP, is Vice President of Fluke Reliability. He has more than 25 years of experience in operations leadership, focusing on engineering, asset management, IT, supply, manufacturing automation, and safety systems. A Fluke leader since 2016, he previously served as Senior Practice Director for Proficient, as a manufacturing engineer at Caterpillar, and held positions at Johnson & Johnson, including Manufacturing Equipment Excellence, ME2, Global Leadership. Clark is a long-standing member of the Society of Maintenance and Reliability Professionals and has been a certified maintenance and reliability professional since 2004. Welcome, Kevin, and thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Leah. Happy to be here. Very good. Brian Harrison has more than 10 years of experience in the field of enterprise asset management, applying best-of-breed solutions and current industry-leading practices. He has worked on enterprise projects across industries, including public sector, manufacturing, and aviation. Deploying a blend of EAM mobile and IIoT solutions, he has delivered high-value projects leveraging reliability-centered maintenance in support of ISO 55001, CBM, and ICM. Welcome, Brian, and thank you for being with us today. 
Good morning, everyone. So if you'll forward to the next slide, Brian, I think we're starting with a poll. We are. Indeed. All right. So audience, this is where you get to participate right off the bat. You'll see the poll on screen. If you don't see the poll, I suggest minimizing your screen sign. If you've maximized your screen to see the presentation, shrink it back down to the regular default setting, and that will allow you to answer the questions. The first question on deck, has COVID-19 changed how your organization views remote asset monitoring? You may only select one, so I know that you might have a couple of different things in, in motion right now, so pick the one that is the most relevant to you. Yes, remote monitoring is something we're actively pursuing. Yes, we are considering a remote strategy for the future. Yes, but financial difficulties will delay us. No, we were pursuing it anyway. Or no, we have little interest at this time. So give it another read. I'm looking to get uh, about 70% of the audience to, to participate if possible. And we're almost there, so give it another think. Which of these are you are most reflective of where your site is at? Are you actively pursuing remote monitoring? Uh, is it going to be a little difficult, or you're already there, or it just wasn't right for you? I'm going to give it about 30 more seconds, and then I'm going to close the poll, and I'm going to show everyone the results so that we can all see where the folks on this call today are at, and then we will start the presentation. All right, I'm going to share the results now. So let's see, we've got 18% of folks that say they are actively pursuing remote monitoring, while 26% are considering their remote strategy. 15% know they're gonna have some financial difficulties. 29% were already well on their way, and 12% don't have interest at this time. So Brian and, and Kevin, what do you think about these answers? You know, we actually had a conversation uh, prior to this, and I think that lines up with similar to what we were expecting, you know, in terms of there's a good uh, proportion of the organizations out there already kind of on this journey um, at various mm -hmm. levels of success um, and experimentation, whereas some others that are starting to evaluate it, you know, some are funded, some are trying to figure out how to build a business case, obviously, with the additional challenges that 2020 has thrown at us. Great. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I just just I had longer to do the math than Brian did, so I was able to sit here and figure out that 60% were yes, which is mm -hmm. kind of what we expected. Um, that it has a, had an impact on the way that they look at uh, remote monitoring. So yeah, I agree with Brian that this is there's there's uh, this is rather expected. Okay. Well, I'm going to hide those results and turn it back over to you. I know we have a really interesting media presentation, so why don't you kick it off? Thanks, Thanks, Leah. Okay, so, so well, good morning uh, to everyone. I, I, I'm assuming that there are some that could be good evening and some that could be uh, uh, good afternoon. But um, anyway, wh what I wanted to start on, or Brian, if you'll go to that first slide for me, what I wanted to start on was just taking us back a little bit and do a little his, history on on uh, where we've been, where we're going, and and uh, just to kind of get things kicked off here. And when we look at these industrial revolutions that we've experienced over the last few hundred years, um, you know, you can you can see a pattern um, for the revolutions. There's typically about a hundred years in between uh, a revolution and then between the third and the fourth, it got down to about 40 years. And 
So that was a significant difference than the first, second, and the third. And there's a very good chance that the Industry 5.0 is going to come even quicker. And I think the fourth one, which is what we're in now, Industry 4.0, um, is really, really focused on connectivity, the IoT and the IoT devices, and how do we get those to get come together and uh, improve performance and and um, productivity and and that and industry 4.0 is really focused in on that industry 5.0 is going to be uh, interesting a lot of uh, automation profits out there that are talking about you know where where are we heading for industry 5.0 and and I think some of the consensus is starting to say that industry 5.0 is going to look a little bit more like people working side by side with robots having touch points and real communication with AI and and so it's it's the next level of of um, interaction and how we how we utilize automation so Brian if you go to the next one for me please mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I did this intentionally I know all of you are looking at this saying wow it's a lot of words on that screen so what I intend to not do is read it for you um, but this is really important. We're talking about ISA 95, and ISA 95 is is um, what's called the International um, Society of Automation. And it was actually formed in 1945. And so some of you are uh, witty enough to figure out that what kind of automation did we actually have in 1945 that would cause us to create an International Society of Automation? Well, there's, there's a reason, because it was originally called the Instrumentation Society of America, uh, still ISA. And in 2000, they renamed it to Instrumentation Systems and Automation, still ISA. And in 2007, they named it the International Society of America, which makes a lot, I'm sorry, International Society of Automation, apologize for that. Um, but it makes a lot of sense now moving more towards automation rather than being very focused on instrumentation. You've seen the ISA very focused on the process industry, which makes a ton of sense for instrumentation, but now looking more holistically at the industry for automation. There's a couple of things. I introduce it from a personal standpoint that when you look at, when you look at how this came about, um, you see some organizations forming in Europe, you see some organizations forming in America, uh, or European organizations would be Samosa, and a lot of you on the phone may have heard of Samosa. It's computer integrated manufacturing, open systems architecture. And then there was another one going on in America from a university, Purdue University, that's called Purdue Enterprise Reference Architecture. And they were coming up basically at the same time and being developed simultaneously. But they had different slightly different architectures in the way they were doing it. Both were pushing for open architectures, but but they were slightly different. And then what ended up happening is they created a unified model, uh, which ended up being generalized enterprise reference architecture methodology, which is looking at both methods from the European standpoint and the American standpoint, um, and creating what ultimately became ISA 95. And so it's important to kind of know where it came from but when you look at the 80 to 94 region, uh, and I just happened to be one that had to live the 80 to 94 region, I had to live the 95 to 2010. So I have personal experiences. So sometimes when I see these things about our challenges um, that we had from 80 to 94 and proprietary systems and 
um, you know, designing ourselves into a corner and, and uh, silos of data, you know, some of those are personal stories for me. Um, you know, I also, the other personal part about this is that in 1994 is when I went to college and I went to Purdue and I went into a program called Computer Integrated Manufacturing, and that's what I graduated out of. And so I was, I was there while the, the topic was incredibly hot and had no idea that it was going to be such a big part of what we do every day. Um, and then today I'm working with Purdue to create the next degree, which is called, uh, it's a bachelor's of science in intelligent manufacturing that'll be available in 2021. So it's kind of like the next iteration and it looks at big data and all the other big things that, that, uh, um, are part of the automation space today. So when I when I look down through the the years here and the challenges that we had um, in the ninety the late nineties to the two thousand and tens, you know, some of us get to say that we also were developing systems, myself being one, during Y two K, and that was a pretty monumental uh, ex experience. Um, diving deep into our legacy systems and then deploying new systems and understanding the impact of what, what I do today may affect me in 20 years. And so I think those are being thought about more as we develop open systems and develop standards. So as, as we look at technology by the decades, how we approach it today um, needs to be able to account for changes in the future. And I think, I think that, you know, especially in the industry 4.0 that we're working on right now, scalability, uh, mobility, um, and the ability to customize on the fly um, makes it so that it's much more impactful as we go uh, down the road. So we do know that history is important and history is what it is and we learn from it and we get better. And with that, I'll introduce Brian to take it from here. Thanks, Kevin. Yep. So, you know, it can be interesting to look back at the paths that different technologies follow, um, you know, as they work their way up to take their place in our world and in our lives, you know, and impact what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, and taking that step change from being something that we want because we know it can help us be more effective um, or be more competitive either in our workplace or even in our personal lives and then suddenly shifting into something that we need and rely upon on um, from a day-to-day -day basis something that's critical to the nature of what we do and how we go about accomplishing what we do on a daily basis um, you know a fun, a fun one to look back at can even be you know mobile phone technology where it took a couple of decades for it to really get there to get to that point where it was changing the way we lived our lives. You know, if you look at the 80s and early 90s, if you wanted to reach somebody, you had to one, know where they were, and then two, have some means of calling that place so you could even get them on the phone. You know, then you fast forward to the late 90s, early 2000s, suddenly the vast majority of us are accessible anytime, day or night, no matter where we are. And you fast forward even a little further than that into the uh, 2000s and suddenly, if you're going on a family vacation or a business trip, you're not grabbing a AAA tick tick, uh, ticket or you're not grabbing a book of maps. You have everything, whether it's GPS, your email, social media news, everything's in a handheld device that you throw in your pocket. So when we look at IoT and 
you know, the concept of IoT is now at that 20 year mark. We're starting to see the tipping point is here. You know, more and more organizations have adopted um, an even larger percentage are looking to adopt it sometime in the next couple of years. And even with the stutter step that occurred due to COVID, most organizations and culturally, we're starting to see that IoT does have something in it that's no longer can help us be better at what we do. It's something that in order to remain relevant, in order to remain a strong competitor in the marketplace in general, it's something that needs to be adopted. And more importantly, we need to understand how to adopt it in order to drive value for our organizations. So you know, I, I think at general consensus is we can all agree that 2020 really has been the year of Jumanji, um, where you know roughly 15% of organizations today are saying that as of June, they were operating in something that was familiar and somewhat normal. You know, considering that the majority of organizations at this point are trying to figure out how to remotely monitor their assets, how to make their organizations dynamic enough to not just respond to 2020, but whatever comes after this. Because what we've learned is seeing something come out of the blue that we have zero control of to some degree, be able to impact us regardless of geography, regardless of industry, it's finding a way to affect us in our day-to-day -day lives and in our organizations. So, you know, in some cases that may be a matter of supply chain, in other cases, it may be a matter of being able to ensure safety um, for our technicians. So really kind of stepping back and understanding that the technologies that we thought we may have had five or 10 years as a nice to have is suddenly a little more pertinent and a little more immediate. Um, but it, it's not a change that we wanna make um, with our eyes just on you know, this month, this quarter, or even this year. It's technology that if we're going to make an investment and if we're gonna put our chips on that number, it helps to really understand what the long-term benefit's going to be. So you know, hopefully today we're able to connect some of those dots in terms of some expectation on where that comes from, both on the near-term and the long-term. So to help guide us through this, um, you know, Kevin had touched on the ISA 95 standard. The automation pyramid really does fit as a nice roadmap um, for us to kind of follow in terms of the evolution of automation, how it ties to other systems as well as our equipment and assets. Kevin, would you mind giving a little bit of kind of overview on the origin story of the ISA? Yeah, I will. So uh, some of you on the on the call may may be familiar with uh, with the pyramid, um, especially those on the on the process side of the the business that. Um, that has seen this for 25 years now uh, for ISA 95. It has changed over the years a little bit. The, the pyramid was was created even before ISA 95, and that was the European and Americans coming together and 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 putting putting their concepts or their standards together, and then forming this uh, this pyramid. And it makes sense. Uh, now we've changed it a little bit, so it's it's a little bit the flavor of Pure, the Purdue model, with a little bit of the flavor of the European model, um, because we're looking at this from a maintenance and reliability standpoint, and how our technologies line up to the different layers that's been laid out by ISA 95. So it's compliant to ISA 95. We're just pulling out the parts that make sense to our conversation, um, because the automation conversation is really big so we're skinning in this pyramid down to maintenance and reliability and and making it make sense to us but iso 95 um 
has made tremendous strides. And I think for those that are um, on the, that uh, know SMRP, Society of Maintenance and Reliability Professionals, you might, you might recognize the fact that ISA and SMRP have come together um, over the past 15, 20 years. And the, even down to the point where their certifications that ISA was creating that were maintenance related have now shifted that off to SMRP. So you might recognize the CMRT, which is a certified maintenance and reliability technician that was started in 2010. That was previously ISA's certification for what they called the certified industrial maintenance mechanic, um, which they transferred over to SMRP. And so they're combining their efforts, their standardization for for the globe and putting them in the places that they belong. Um, and so this ISA 95 standard is morphing into a, a larger automation um, uh, model for all of industry. And so what we're trying to do in, within the context of this presentation is pull out the parts that make sense to the maintenance and reliability and speak to those and what it looks like going forward and trying to figure out a strategy, especially in consideration of what we just experienced with COVID. Brian? Thanks. Yeah, so, I mean, on Kevin's point, the fact that, you know, this standard has been around since the 49ers last won a Super Bowl under Steve Young doesn't take away from its relevance. I mean, the fact that this is actually becoming more relevant as we move into even the time of COVID and the impact of that means that most organizations at the tipping point can use this still as a very relevant architecture to kind of model off of, you know, almost a benchmark, if you will. But an important point on this is that while it is built as a hierarchy, it's you can view it more as a Lego set in terms of there are certain levels on this that as we go through certain layers that are gonna apply, whereas others may not. Um, and it's all about right-sizing automation and the appropriate technology so that they support the organization and their ultimate mission. Now it can be helpful to map the automation pyramid to the PNF curve that we're all very familiar with. You know, so as you look at the layers of the pyramid and you start working your way down in the levels, you look at level one being, you know, your technicians that are actually out in the field that are engaging with the assets and equipment, the folks that are walking the routes that are actually on a physical level, very familiar with the critical assets that are foundational to the organization versus when you get into augmenting solutions such as handheld tools, sensors, you know, you're, you're moving a little further to the left in terms of earlier determination of a deviation from what would be a normal operating um, standard for the assets. And then as you continue to move up um, the pyramid, you continue to shift more and more to the left as well. So you're getting earlier and earlier detection, earlier determination that there's something that you can do to remediate risk to the life cycle of the assets. So while PIRA and while the uh, ISA 95 standard don't include specifically the process, you know, at Fluke, obviously, we view it from an MNR standpoint and with maintenance reliability in mind, you know, we want to start with our technician here at the bottom level because that truly is the jumping off point. That is the physical care for our assets. That's where our subject matter experts live and breathe. That's also where we can experience, you know, our gap from our 25-year senior technicians and our SMEs that are critical to our organizations moving forward. So we start with that in terms of getting a feel for, you know, where our skill levels are. You know, a lot of organizations are feeling the effects of retirement, um, having trouble in terms of recruiting 
and you know remaining competitive, getting the sharp individuals to still want to go into maintenance and reliability to understand the value that you can give to an organization in those roles. So as our technician ascends the, on the pyramid and we go up to this next level, we look at tools and sensors and you know, a lot of that, as particularly as it relates to automation, can be focused on remote monitoring of assets. And that can be things such as pressure gauges, that can be vibration, vibration sensors, um, remote thermography monitoring of uh, HSE sensitive assets. But it's a matter of augmenting our technicians in the field. So, you know, accounting for the varying level skill sets while still driving a standard of practice, while making sure that we're capturing pertinent information from the assets. And then when our technicians are out in the field, enriching their experience. So while we may have some technicians that have, you know, 30 years experience and others with two years experience, putting the right tool in their hands or giving them the right information from sensors can really augment that entire gap so that we're making sure that no matter who's executing a work order or a route, we're able to get the right information. Now, this of course leads into deeper questions of what data is worth capturing, but then also what data is worth keeping. So that's where you start to look at, you know, digitalized tools that are allowing technicians to take readings in the field when they're going out and doing, you know, some prescriptive practices or doing assessments at the level of the asset. But then what do we do with that data? You know, some data, do we want to just keep it on the device and then when the shift is over, we lose it? Or are we starting to acknowledge that as we move towards industry 4.0 in a more mature way, do we want to start retaining that data so that even though that particular work order or that particular shutdown is no longer effective and it's been closed out, is that data, do we still want to drive some value out of it? Do we still want to, in a future state, be able to go back and use these readings on these days for a deeper analysis so that down the road, when we start to see a repeat of an issue, we're not a slave to anecdotal evidence. We're able to step back and start drawing more objective conclusions. So on level three, that's really where the automation pyramid kind of hits its stride. You know, in addition to the sensors that augment our ability to get readings off of these, the SCADA and PLC systems, DCS, OPC, BMS, you name it, these are the ability of that our smart assets have to raise their hand and say, there's something that we should be paying attention to. You know, this could be a minor deviation. This could be an asset starting to go a little wonky, but it allows for early detection without somebody actually having to hear an issue or see an issue. It allows us to go behind the curtain of the asset and understand what's happening on the inner workings without being completely reliant upon somebody who is a subject matter expert in SCADA information. So what we're talking about really when we're looking at SCADA systems from a maintenance and reliability standpoint is that the ability to blend the data that's coming off of the equipment along with the experience of our subject matter experts, along with our technicians in the field, so that an earlier determination that there's something we need to look at on the asset, we're able to really get a true surety, uh, confidence that we're managing the life cycle of these assets appropriately. And more importantly, we're prioritizing work, not based on what a calendar is telling us, but we're prioritizing our work based on what our assets are telling us. Because at the end of the day, that's really what we're there for. 
So as our technician moves into enterprise asset management, that's it's really a step change in terms of our ability to not just get information from our assets, be that SCADA or sensor information, but it's our ability to tie it all together. You know, whether you call it an enterprise asset management system or a computerized maintenance management system, here is where we're scheduling our work, here's where our tracking, all of our efforts, be they, you know, CM or PMs, but this is where we're able to step back and say, how are we doing what we do on an effective basis? And where the automation technologies step in, again, whether it's sensor or SCADA information, it's not a matter of changing the process in terms of how we go about doing our day-to-day -day jobs, but what it does is it makes a dramatic difference in when we're receiving notifications of what we need to do. So that tipping point of when a process begins no longer has to be fully reliant upon when somebody's executing a route, when somebody's physically walking by an asset and says, hey, we should go check that out, or you know, and the asset owner raises their hand and says, yeah, you know, the machine's acting a little different today than it was yesterday. You know, the ability to, within a minute, be notified the right people at the right time, the information that a particular asset is having an event of some kind, the savings there can be substantial. So the top of our pyramid is the enterprise resource planning system, which, you know, in my background with asset management system, and I don't know if Kevin would agree with this, but, you know, we, we always kind of look at ERP with a bit of a side eye. But the truth is for the other parts of the business, the ERP is their you know, one system of truth. It's where everybody looks to to justify what the organization is doing at the enterprise level. So while we may not live in the ERP system, it's really important to tie our asset data into the system because at the end of the day, you know, it helps justify our business case for why we're there. You know, it helps reaffirm why maintenance and reliability should never be looked at as overhead why when we're talking about budget, you know, the ability to track what our costs on an asset is across life cycle, you know, roll up what, our, what we're doing on shift, you know, and, and I'm not talking about getting into the minutia of wrench time, but helping the rest of the organization understand the tremendous value that maintenance and reliability groups are delivering by putting their hands on equipment and continuing to monitor and continuing to keep it up and running so the rest of the organization can do what they do in terms of continuing to generate revenue. So the ROI when it comes to automation, we really break it down into two columns, um, the short-term and long-term. The first one we'll go through here very briefly is where we see short-term ROI. And this is, by short-term, what I mean is this is where we can start seeing an impact on our pockets within 30 days. So, you know, obviously there's overall, based on the fact that mean time to repair, time to diagnosis, there's a great reduction in those that automatically is going to drive an increase in our asset availability and also our capabilities around throughput, and particularly if we're doing any form of manufacturing. But where we really see a significant um, savings is around calendar-based PMs. So when you look at the costs that are associated with calendar PMs, we're really looking at, you know, not just the cost of doing work that may or may not be necessary, but burning through inventory parts, burning through items that we have to stock and continue buying at a volume that may not be necessary based on the use of the assets. But we're also able to eliminate the potential for damage, you know, over or under lubrication, the risks that always happen when you're taking units apart and then putting them back together, additional wear and tear that may not be necessary, or at the very least may not be adding value to the organization. You know, an interesting uh, project that I had the privilege of working on um, earlier this year was an organization was launching a third line for production 
and it was specifically used for strategic overflow. So they knew they weren't gonna be operating five to seven days a week. So on day one, they wanted the ability to throw out the OEM manuals for calendar-based PMs and strictly operate PMs based on runtime, based on oil levels, but take the actual condition status for condition-based monitoring to drive all of their maintenance activities. And the savings on that that they saw was 42% of what they anticipated they would be looking at for the upkeep of that line. Now, on a long-term perspective, when it comes to all this automation data is the idea of cultivating your library. So realistically, you know, any concept of artificial intelligence or BI solutions, they're realistically gonna be five to 10 years out, particularly for maintenance. You know, they're still building out the business cases. They're still trying to figure out what questions, what value could potentially be added. But there really isn't a question about that we're gonna get there. It's just a matter of when. So the ability to start capturing significant amounts of data in storing it, you know, whether that's in a data lake or a data warehouse, that's where we're seeing the value in terms of planning ahead. So the ability to capture that data and store it so that when we get there and we have the algorithms or we have the right questions we wanna ask, we're not starting from scratch. We actually have a historical view of our assets that we can then analyze and start to determine, okay, here's the questions we should ask, but we then have a confidence level that the answers we're getting back from those AI solutions are accurate. So, you know, a lot of people ask, where do we start? Um, and there really is no one answer for every organization. It's a matter of determining uniquely for your organization, where do you want to begin? What's gonna add the most value? You know, what's gonna help you drive momentum? Because budget dollars, they're not just cheap, they don't come easily for our organization. So it's a matter of determining and right-sizing a strategic approach. What assets do we wanna know more about? What assets carry the most risk for us? You know, if, if we've done any, effort to have a PCR number assigned to our assets, utilizing that to make sure that we're starting on the right side and then determining if the asset's already being generated by the equipment or if it needs to be augmented with a sensor of some kind. So as we talk about pilots, you know, they come in a lot of different shapes and sizes and this year has certainly thrown a number of curveballs at us. So, you know, in 2020, we have seen a significant change in how organizations view pilots. You know, it's a matter of where organizations, you traditionally would have somebody kind of looking off to the horizon on where should we be in the next five years, where should we be in the next year. A lot of organizations right now are very focused on today, this week, this month. So that immediate change in terms of being focused on what do we need to do now has also driven a change where the organizations that are starting to look back at pilots and are able to kind of take their head up and go, what do we need to be doing from a long-term perspective and not just now, is how do we do it safely? You know, understanding how do we do 100% remote pilots? You know, what are the capabilities around there? What are the costs? And then who's going to support us in making those successful? So what a pilot should and should not be. So we've gone through uh, you know, the different levels of, of the automation pyramid, and we use that pyramid uh, for good reason. Uh, it's great infrastructure for how we get to the point where we can be remote. And I think as, as we walk through some of these next few slides about how pilots work and how pilots ought to work and how pilots don't work sometimes, uh, keep in mind um, that the ultimate goal is is getting to a scalable 
architecture, something that we can use to, to build off of. And I think you'll find as we go through these slides that that's, that's not often the case that we, we kind of forget architecture and we, we focus in on one piece of it. And then we're right back in the 80s and 90s and building ourselves into a corner. And so that's the big watch out that we're really trying to get to in this, in this uh, presentation. And Brian and I have this conversation almost daily on what's working, what's not working, uh, what are our clients experiencing? What are we experiencing from a developmental standpoint? So we're we're expressing in this presentation some of the things that, that we just see. So I think I've given you enough time. You can kind of go through some of these bullets here. But one of the one of the things with a pilot should not be is it should not be the thing that defines your strategy as a business. It should be something that maybe accelerates or proves or disproves your strategy, um, but it should not be um, what defines your strategy. And if you keep it in mind that a pilot is an experiment, which is really the true definition of a pilot, um, is where maybe the vendor and the client come together and perform that experiment because some of the things you got to remember is when you get to, when when you have a vendor client relationship is is we're both on a journey we're both um in different places we're in in a place of development uh for the future and you're in a place of i need this and how do i get there um and we're expected as vendors to to be ahead um and that's a fair expectation we should be ahead not too far ahead but ahead um, and providing to you what you feel you need for your operation. And so it's an experiment. That's exactly what a pilot is. So it's it's a good way for us to get in there, work with you, figure out what works, what doesn't work. And that allows us to go back then to the development table. A couple of, uh, not quite yet, Brian, back please. <clears throat> a couple of statistics um, that I want to go through. And this is that, there's some things that are going on, and this is this is a this is a, a statistic from a university for the U.S. And it says 82% of all manufacturing jobs will soon require medium to high digital skills. Um, and that's medium to high is really talking about the internet and um, uh, email and things like that, and the capability to understand how digital works. And and so it's not necessarily um, that we can all code AI. Um, but then the next statistic is one in six working Americans don't know how to use email, internet, or have basic digital skills. So conflicting. But then the next statistic also says private industry training investment is down by 30%. So not only are we short on digital skills, but we are also short on training in the last decade. And then to kind of top it off, we have one in five or 20% that don't believe digital transformation projects are worthwhile. And that's telling in itself. Now, one thing to keep in mind, these statistics were taken prior to COVID. And I think a lot of you have seen the joke out there of you know what sea level uh, implemented your digital transformation. Was it your CIO? Was it your CEO? You know, was it your CTO or was it COVID. And, you know, so it's it's today versus four months ago. 
um, executives are thinking differently about how do I keep my business up and running and digital was the answer for many. Um, just a couple of other points on this slide. One is a pilot must possess transparency. In other words, um, transparency in the way of not focusing with, with blinders on, focusing on one particular area. If that particular area works for you, but the rest of that pilot didn't, you need to expose that and make sure that that's out there. Otherwise, you set yourself up for potentially deploying a solution that wasn't right for your business. So transparency is incredibly important. Um, not all is solved. There's plenty of opportunities. So that means that we don't create pilots that try to solve every problem that we have. We stay focused. We define what the problem is and we just solve that problem. Uh, so same thing with clear expectations and driving success. Um, and then the last part is what I talked about first is, is we're all on a journey, not just clients, the manufacturers. Um, those that are developing the solutions are also on a journey. And, and so um, what you'll find is there's a lot of willingness to partner, to come together, to, to do a pilot. Uh, but again, the expectations need to be clear for that to be successful. Right. So there is no connected reliability plan that is identical. Every one of you, every one of us are in a different place in our journey when it comes to that um, and how we connect our systems. And I think that the, the biggest point on this slide is that 80% of 2019 IoT pilots failed. That's, that is a huge number. I, I don't wanna call it the 80-20 rule because I think that's unfair. I would also like to know, um, and this, sometimes this is difficult to get the information, but I would like to know how much of the 80% was because the expectations weren't clear, because the education wasn't where it needed to be. Um, many times we have our are no pun intended we have our expectations somewhere in the cloud um, when realistically um, our expectations ought to be you know closer to closer to ground level so we really understand what we're trying to solve and so i would i would venture to guess that big part of that 80 percent is that expectations weren't clear right so these are kind of fun, but not so fun. So the, the uh, chart on the right, um, so those of you that are uh, Gen Xers, um, born 65 and after, and also those that um, are millennials, um, we're actually tracking pretty close when it comes to um, adoption of technology. So um, owning a smartphone, we're almost identical, which I think is very interesting. Um, changes a little bit as you get into owning a tablet and social media and things like that. But when you start looking at those generations, myself included, and there's maybe there's not very many of you on the phone that can say that you've got three decades of, of history that you can um, point out all your failures. But if I tried something 20 years ago, and then you go back and you look at the history that we showed earlier about how we were stuck in proprietary systems and um, difficult with scalability and silos of data and all of that, it would be unfair for me to say I already tried that 20 years ago. Because today is a totally different day and tomorrow will be even more different. So I, I, think, I think that one, 
in in my history has been a barrier for sure. Um, I've already replaced legacy systems that I created 20 years ago. And so I know exactly how it feels to say I already tried that. And then to say that you understand the needs of the next generation is a, is a pretty bold statement. Um, I have a couple of kids, both Ys and Zs, um, generations, and to boldly say that I understand their needs for, for their coming career would be pretty bold. Um, I understand all of my options, and I'll show you why later, where you don't understand all of your options in the IoT. I'm looking for a mature IoT solution, and here I am with an IoT solution at Fluke, and I can assure you that a mature IoT solution um, is not what you expect. Um, again, we're all in a journey. We have very mature components of our IoT solution, but those IoT solutions are changing daily. Technology is changing daily. And so that's why it's so important to experiment, to work side by side with your vendors um, in these pilots, set clear expectations and, and move forward. And then cultural behaviors, I think we all, we all see that. We see um, when, when we look at the, uh, the millennials and um, we look at the, the Zs and I mean, the way they're, the way they're built is so different. Um, and the way they think about technology is different. I, I do a different presentation on doing uh, doing digital versus being digital. And doing digital is because I have to, and being digital is because I want to. And what you'll find in the generations, there's a lot more want to than there is in the older generations. And so the last one is I got this, and that's just a overconfidence. I got this. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I got this. And all kinds of all kinds of confidence to run into the IoT and the next thing you know, you've gone too far and you didn't make good decisions and you really didn't know what you're getting yourself into and then you've got a mess. So we, we kind of become our own barriers, right? Um, I take accountability for this first part because in the, around the late 90s and early 2000s, I was developing SCADA systems. And so I was one of the contributors to creating silos of data um, and sometimes when I, when I see an image like this, I, I like to say it's not just connecting reliability, it's also connecting silos. And so I see that often these days where we're, I couldn't get to that data in the 90s, but I can get to it now. And so I'm essentially connecting those silos. And I think it makes a lot of sense to people too. These are, it isn't the answer to all my asset management issues. Um, and it's not. Matter of fact, I think you, I've spent, I spent some of my time de-automating systems um, because automation wasn't the right solution or automation wasn't ready to be the right solution. Um, the, the next one is IoT is the future. Well, yeah, I think we kind of agree IoT is the future. But if you go into it with the mentality that I have to do this, then likely you're not putting the right mindset. You might have had a vice president or or some leadership inside of an organization that came down and said, you will do IoT. Um, you go do it. You got check boxes. Yep, did it, did it, did it. But did we do it right? Did we do it um, with the right perspective? Did we do it in the right places? 
and so uh, it's better that having a deep understanding of IoT where it provides value versus thou shalt. Um, and then software still does fail, hardware still does fail, but in this world of IoT, there is a mindset that uh, software is now perfect and hardware is now perfect. And I'll, I'll take the next couple of uh, bullets together, predictive and preventative maintenance. So preventative maintenance is, is not a thing of the past. Matter of fact, preventative maintenance is actually gonna grow because preventative maintenance is everything that we do. Predictive maintenance is a subset of preventative. Same thing with, um, same thing with prescriptive maintenance and anything that has to do with maintaining assets all fits underneath of preventative maintenance. So it's actually going to grow and predictive maintenance is not that easy. There's a lot of things that need to happen in condition monitoring and other things that, that need to be built and identified and mature before a predictive solution is, is just to the point where you can turn it on. Uh, predictive is knowledge. And in flawless execution, we know projects are projects, and there's no such thing as flawless execution. And Brian? This is a fun slide, too. Um, I intentionally make it small so that you can't see fully what it is. But if you look at the very top, you can see that it's that these, um, this colorful uh, chart is just in Israel the startups for artificial intelligence, just in Israel. So you can only imagine what a chart like this would look like for Europe or the US. Um, it would just be a crazy, crazy chart. So, you know, when you when you think about these companies, I don't know these companies. Matter of fact, I will probably know very few of them um, if you were to blow it up and, and see the names on them. But the differentiation between each of those companies is is generally pretty minute, um, and it's difficult to know what one company does versus another company. And sometimes they focus on an industry. Sometimes they focus on um, not just an industry, but just into something like oil and gas or life sciences. Um, and you just don't know the difference. Um, it changes frequently. Um, we buy companies. Um, we help companies start. Um, companies close uh, because they failed in some way, shape, or form. There's new players every single day, um, so it's constantly changing. And then the final part is that they're all claiming to be the end-to-end -end solution. They're all claiming to be very smart. They're all claiming to be uh, highly adopted um, in X industries. Um, and then, of course, they're all cost-effective, and there's a huge return on investment. So, you know, just a, just a common man trying to figure out which company to go for and who do I pilot with is incredibly difficult, right? So a couple of, couple of uh, um, pieces of advice, and, and I like to do this because it's, it's talking a vendor to a client. Um, Less in a, hey, I got something to sell you, more of a, hey, I, I, let's partner, let's figure out what works and what doesn't work without the, without the idea of buying something. So um, we do it as a way to help our development efforts. Pilots make a lot of sense to us. Um, and we, 
we do them pretty frequently. Now it's changed significantly since COVID. It's just been just been a weird um, weird event, and um, I think all would say we've struggled to get back to the norm. So we we know there's a different norm out there of how we do pilots, and Brian alluded to it earlier of possibly doing remote pilots and interacting that way. And um, and then it says from a client perspective that your part your pilot should also be an experiment accelerates your continuous improvement initiatives, and that goes back to clearly um, understanding your expectations. And if you can clearly understand the expectations and for the problem to be solved, take that to your vendor and talk through that with your vendor. Um, and then approach it with an experimental mindset. Um, you go much further. Um, be selective about the pilots from a vendor perspective. And we've had to do this where we look at we look at the clients coming to us and saying, hey, we want to do a pilot for this. It's important that the vendor is selective about that as well and, and basically puts their foot down and says, we need to really think about how we're doing this pilot because the value that's coming out of it for both parties. Um, and for the client, do your homework, because not all vendor solutions are a fit. Um, just because it has AI doesn't mean it fits your predictive needs. And this is to the vendors, and I'm speaking to us as well as Fluke, is that don't let the temptation of that huge potential, like, wow, this is, this is X company in the petrochemical business and wow, let's just go do it and let's put our blinders on and let's go do this pilot. Um, when, you, when you have that mindset as a vendor, that's when you're part of that 80% of failure um, in a pilot. So not only is it important that the client set expectations, the vendor needs to set them as well. Um, and then the same thing with, with the with the client is be careful that you don't set expectations and you don't inflate those ex expectations, um, hoping that you'll be able to talk the vendor into doing a bigger pilot. Um, small is really a good way to think for both parties because it's precise, it solves the problem, and then it allows you to then expand from there. So get a success, expand, get a success, and expand, and be careful about taking off biting off uh, chunks that uh, that won't pay off later. So I guess at the end of the day, what we're talking about is is um, building systems that are not only adaptable, but scalable and terrible. And we're choosing partners that have vision, longevity, and a roadmap. And I emphasize roadmap. Roadmap is so important because roadmap tells you where you've been, where you are, and where you're heading. And that is incredibly important when it comes to your expectations and your long-term vision. Brian? Okay, thank you, both Brian and Kevin. And audience, I'm going to open up one last poll for you right now. Um, and the question is, how do you fit in with today's technology after everything that you've just heard? The highs and lows. Does technology make you better at your job? Do you feel like technology has its pros and cons? Do you feel like technology is competing for your job? Or are you fully in the Sarah Connor camp? And I need to ask Brian and Kevin to explain that last one a little bit because I think I get it, but why don't you just tell us what you're thinking about there? 
I think it's safe to that one. Sarah Connor is one of the uh, poster child of uh, technology resistance. Mm -hmm. So her sole mission is to stop technology. Yes. Um, obviously in a fictional world of future apocalypse. <laughs> mm. All right. So if you are a Sarah Connor, you know, choose that option. Otherwise, let us know if you think technology makes you better at your job, if it has its pros and cons, or if you feel like it's competing with you for your job. We've got about 60% of the votes in now. I'd like to get a few more in, and then we'll have a little bit of time left for questions. So if you have questions, you can enter those into the questions tool in GoToWebinar right now. All right, I'm going to close this poll. Thank you, everyone. And here are our answers. We only have 2% of Sarah Connor Terminators. And we only have 2% people feeling that technology is competing for their job. We have 63% say technology is making me better at my job. And 30% have its pros and cons. Gentlemen, how do you feel about those answers? That is a very optimistic audience. Mm -hmm. um, that's great. Because, you know, while it was fun and games uh, with the Sarah Connor, um, yeah, I mean, we can all have our our concerns about the technology, the future, and you know where we're going with it. We can have the worries about competing for uh, technology, competing for our jobs. Um, I think every single person on the phone should naturally have some of that built in. That's just you know that's just human nature. But to come out with 90 plus percent um, in the top two answers, I, I think is is awesome. Um, yeah, because I, I we're definitely going in this direction. We know that there are some things that we have to do from a digital standpoint because we have to be able to counter things like COVID in the future. We need to make ourselves more efficient, more productive, but at the same time, um, increase our ability to spend time at home uh, with the family. Right. And so I, I'm I'm excited to see that. Awesome. Brian, will you forward to the next slide because I want to make sure Absolutely. that people have your email addresses. So audience, you are very welcome to ping Kevin and Brian directly at those email addresses on the screen. We will also be sending you a copy of this presentation when I do close, and I'm not closing it yet, but when I do close, make sure to hang on and answer the survey because that will trigger us sending the slides to you. And of course, this full recording will be available online shortly and you'll be able to re-listen to aspects of it. So I think I only have time for one question, and I, I'm going to, I believe this is directed more at Brian when you were talking to the pyramid. And this is coming from a reliability person's perspective uh, on the savings, I believe, for um, when you were talking about the ROI. So I am confused with the statement of calendar-based PMs. Is the goal to replace time-based maintenance tasks with condition-based maintenance tasks? Or is it more to the point to infuse condition-based maintenance techniques in place of time-based where it matters the most? So very good question. And the answer is kind of a blend of the two depending on industry. So there are always going to be certain segments that due to regulatory requirements, there are certain calendar-driven maintenance activities that you simply cannot avoid. Um, they are things that they are required to do and required to report on and track in order to maintain their abilities to compete and to work 
and their industries. Um, for other aspects though of that where assets and equipment may either not be GMP critical or may not have any relevance to the governing body, um, you know, HVAC units, centrifugal pumps that aren't on critical pieces of equipment. The goal is to, in fact, replace um, calendar-based PMs and go to condition-based maintenance activities that are driven um, specifically off unique data coming from that asset. So as you're getting, you know, in some cases that may be runtime, um, that can be temperature, vibration, um, it could be thermography readings, it could be a matter of oil levels. Depending on what it is, though, the idea is to, instead of sending out, you know, Dana or Daniel to go grab a kit, to go get the parts and items they need and go take apart a piece of equipment, um, replace the valves or replace the fittings, instead of doing that simply because it's May 15th and that's what we do um, once a year in May or quarterly, it's driving it specifically off of the individual use case, off of that piece of equipment. We know that the OEM manual traditionally is going to be built out to provide a little more um, protection and a little more safety than may be necessary. So it's a matter of being able to prioritize work instead of allowing the calendar to dictate it, dictate it based on what is the value to the organization. Thank you. All right, if you will forward to the next slide. Mm -hmm. There we go. And you'll see here on July 22nd, we'll be, we'll be welcoming Nancy Reagan to this webinar series. And uh, I feel like she needs no introduction to most people in the audience. She'll be speaking about, are you letting your machines control you? Uh, but it, as always, I strongly recommend following Nancy on LinkedIn. She posts regular insights on RCM and RCA. And check out her books and certainly join us July 22nd for her presentation here on this channel. And then Brian, if you'll forward one more time. All right, so please do take the survey at the end. We'd like to get your feedback on today's presentation as well as what other topics you'd like to see webinars on. And you can go to that link on excelx.com to see this webinar and replay as well as previous. And then when you answer the survey, I let us know if you would like a certificate of attendance about today's experience. And if you'll forward one more time, there we go. So thank you very much, Brian and Kevin. It was such a pleasure having you today. This was an excellent topic. Thank you for your work. Thank you, Leah. Thank pleasure. you, everyone. Thank you, Leah. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Have a wonderful day, and hopefully we'll see you soon.